Let's turn our attention to, uh, to John 18. If you have your Bible, I invite you to open up there. We've been in our ongoing study of the Gospel of John. We've been uh, in, in the midst of kind of some intimate conversation. Uh, from chapter 13 through 16, we see Jesus personally and sort of privately instructing his disciples, preparing their hearts for the fact that he is going to be crucified and that he is going to ascend to the right hand of the Father. He's preparing them for that separation, a preparation for separation, if you will. By the time we get to 17, <clears throat> we see this uh, this prayer of consecration. We're given a glimpse into the prayer life of Jesus himself. In the longest recorded prayer we have of Jesus in the scripture, we see him both pray for himself and the coming pain that's coming and the coming work that he still has yet to do. We see him pray for his disciples. And then last week we looked at his prayer for those who would become disciples in the future through the ministry of God's word throughout the centuries. We finish up with that beautiful sort of intimate conversation and we get to 18 and we jump right back into narrative. And not just narrative, but kind of like a slap in the face narrative. I don't know. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this, but there's kind of a there's a thing that's happening in movies and TV. There's a, there's a certain camera angle that I've seen show up in lots of movies and lots of television shows in the last five years or so. It's getting more and more popular. But it's this angle where a a couple will be driving down the road or a couple of friends will be driving down the road in their car and they're just having a mundane conversation, right? They're talking about where they're going to go for lunch or what they're going to do that next week or things that are happening at work and then all of a sudden you can see over the passenger's shoulder through the window you see like a dump truck coming. You know what I'm talking about? You've seen that angle on TV shows? They do that now a lot where somebody's just talking about nothing and then there's this car coming full speed and it smashes into the side and then they go into slow-mo and the car starts to roll and glass flies everywhere. It catches you by surprise. The drama starts immediately. That's what they're trying to do in those movies and films. They're trying to catch you by surprise. It's not completely unlike sitting in Dodger Stadium on Wednesday night and uh, you knew I was going to talk about this, right? I mean, this is... This is a deeply painful wound in my soul. I gotta share this with family. Sitting in Dodger Stadium on Wednesday night, you know, innings two, four, five, six, we're just high-fiving, we're talking, we're having a great time at Dodger Stadium, and then out of nowhere, out of nowhere, we give up a grand slam in the tenth, in the tenth, my friends, a grand slam in the tenth. We just give it away, and there it goes, all of our hopes and dreams as Dodgers, right? Out of nowhere. Jesus has been talking and instructing and now you and I, we turn the page onto John 18 and the arrest of Jesus happens and if you're not prepared for it, if you're not ready for it, and some of you probably were, but if you're not prepared for it, it feels like a punch in the face. It feels like a dump truck to the side of the car. Let's look at this text together. I just want you to see how quickly this escalates. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, and that that there is talking about his prayer and his interaction with his disciples, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. 
This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken, of those whom you gave me I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? There are these times in our lives where drama comes up unexpectedly, where a threat shows up that we weren't anticipating, where pain and betrayal and suffering comes and we weren't anticipating it, and our tendency is to want to react immediately. We see that in the life of Peter here. As we look at this, we see some of this drama unfold in verses 10 and 11. We see Peter draw this sword. That tends to be the, one, the way in which we want to respond. You know, we want to respond with muscle. We want to respond with power. We want to respond. When there's this drama that comes up, or when there's a threat, or when there's an attack, or when we feel like we're in trouble, we tend to want to flex, right? Peter has a lot going on in his own life. We saw earlier in this study, right? You remember that there was a point where Jesus was saying, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be abandoned. And Peter was adamant, and not by me. Maybe these other turkeys, they might betray you, but I would never betray you. In fact, Peter goes so far as to say, I would die for you. And so as we see Peter draw this sword, by the way, we don't know exactly, uh, I, I didn't know Peter carried a sword. Somebody suggested that maybe he was carrying a sword because he wasn't super great at catching fish with a net, you know? <laughs> and maybe the sword had become his approach to just you know, stab him one at a time, I'm not sure. But Peter draws a sword and he cuts off the right ear of Malchus who was a servant of the high priest. We know from this and John clearly wants us to know that, uh, that Peter was left-handed because it's impossible. To, I mean, unless the servant was turned, we'd have to have CSI in here to figure all that out, you know. But Peter chops off this ear. What's he trying to do? Well, he's trying to prove that not only would he die for Jesus, he'd be willing to kill for Jesus. He's got something to prove in that moment. He's trying to prove that he is loyal, that he is faithful. He's also trying to use his own muscle to accomplish the will of God, to bring in the kingdom of God, to protect Jesus. Can I tell you, Jesus doesn't need his protection. And so we see Jesus actually in Luke chapter, uh, I think it's in Luke 22. In Luke 22, we actually see Jesus heal the man whose ear was chopped off. Here in chapter 18 of John, Jesus looks at Peter and reprimands him. In the midst of this drama, Jesus looks at Peter and says, put your sword back in its sheath. What, this isn't what we're doing here. This isn't what we've come to do to fight. But in our lives, when that drama comes, there is a tendency for us to want to put up our dukes. There's a tendency for us to want to prove ourselves, for us to muscle our way through. And what I want you to see as we look at John 18 is that that is not Jesus' response at all. That Jesus' response has nothing to do with muscle and with a sword. But that his response has everything to do with his confidence in who God is and what God has called him to do. In fact, I will point out, although I don't want to beat it into the ground, I will point out that in the text we're reading today, verses 1 through 11, we see all of our four vision pillars laid out in the life of Jesus. We see radiant peace here. We see revolutionary kindness here. We see prophetic engagement here. We see absolute unblushing oddity and unforced appeal in the life of Christ in, in the face of his accusers and attackers. So where does this betrayal come from? Well, the betrayal comes from Judas, which we knew would happen. Jesus had foretold that that would happen earlier in the text. This betrayal comes from Judas, and there's a couple of things I want you to see as we think about where this betrayal comes from. It, it mentions here early in the text that we're studying today that this was a place of familiarity, that Judas actually knows where to find Jesus because it's a place that they had frequently gone together. 
It says, after Jesus spoke these words, he went out with his disciples across the book Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. The other gospel writers will tell us that that's the garden of Gethsemane. That means, uh, the word Gethsemane means oil press on the Mount of Olives. This was a garden that Jesus frequented. In fact, we see in, uh, if you were to look at John, the end of John 7, the beginning of John 8, it tells us at the end of John 7 that the disciples went to their homes, but that Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, that he went to the garden. This was kind of a pseudo home for Jesus, a place of comfort and relaxing. We see, um, if you were to look in, um, if you were to look in Luke chapter 21, Luke 21, 37, it says every day, speaking about Jesus, during this week even, every day Jesus was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. Early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. He would go and teach in the temple in the mornings, but in the evenings, Jesus would take his rest in the garden, in Gethsemane, near the olive press, right? This was a place where Jesus went to relax. It's a place that John 18 tells us Jesus had taken his disciples many times. It was a place of familiarity and frequency. It was a place where Jesus had comforted his disciples. It was a place they would have thought about with love, And anticipation. It's interesting to me how betrayal happens in the midst of familiarity. By the way, betrayal never happens in in strangers, right? It never happens between strangers. Strangers never betray one another. It's not possible. Betrayal is only possible with those who are friends, those who've made commitments to one another, those who have expectations of one another, those who love one another. It's only in the midst of familiarity that betrayal can occur. But it's crushing and heartbreaking to think that instead of Judas being awed by the ability to sit with the Son of God, to sit with the creator of the universe in this beautiful garden that he himself sort of thought of as his home away from home, that instead of recognizing the beauty and the privilege and the awe of spending time with Jesus in the garden, that that same, that very same place became a place of ambush for him. It was because of his familiarity, it was because of his comfort with that space, that he knew exactly where to find Jesus. I would want us as we begin our study this morning to think about the ways in which betrayal creeps into our life. It doesn't happen because we decide to be betrayers. It doesn't happen because we get up one morning and say, I'm going to disregard who Jesus is or what he's commanded me to do. I'm going to throw the scriptures away and I'm going to live for myself. Nobody flips that switch. Most of the time what happens is that we lose our awe and our wonder. We lose the sense of privilege that we know the creator of the universe, that he's created us with purpose that he has expectation. At some point upon, uh, along the way, our relationship with God becomes routine or it becomes mundane. And what should provoke awe in us, that heart that should go, how crazy is it that I get to sit with Jesus in the garden? Like, who gets to do this? The heart that should have wonder and the, the heart that should have awe instead goes, ah, eh, meeting with Jesus is just like meeting with anyone else. Listening to Jesus is just like listening to anyone else. Following Jesus is just like following anyone else. The betrayal of Judas comes in a place of familiarity. And if I can issue a warning for us this morning, I will say that our betrayals come the very same way. They come in the places where you have lost your awe and you have lost your wonder at having a relationship with God at all. And you get to a place where you go, yeah, you know what? We come to church, we sing some songs. The guy tells us we got to sell hot dogs at Christmas Boulevard. We listen to him talk, hopefully for half an hour, and then we go get some lunch, right? And when we become mundane, when we become routine, when the the relationship and the fellowship with God becomes just sort of -of run-of-the-mill, that's where betrayal creeps in. 
Judas comes to a place of familiarity. He comes to a place where Jesus had loved him well and taught him well. And he uses that as a place of ambush. Not only that, I want you to note in John chapter 18 that Judas comes leading a band of people. Verse 3, Judas having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. I think in this moment about Jesus talking about blind guides in Matthew 15. That when the blind lead the blind, they fall into a pit. Listen, those who've decided to walk away from Jesus, those whose eyes have been blinded to the reality of who he is, those whose eyes have been blinded to the truth of what the scriptures contain, they seldom want to continue on the path by themselves. You know what I'm talking about? And so now what we have is a man who has not only abandoned Jesus personally, but is leading probably 600. It might be closer to 200, depending on what this particular contingency of soldiers looks like. But it can be as many as a thousand thousands, now this guy who has abandoned Jesus isn't just abandoned Jesus on his own. It's not just a solo endeavor. He's leading other people as well. And I will also throw up a yellow warning flag if I can this morning and say in the places in your life where you feel like your faith is coming off the rails, I would issue a warning caution here to say, don't rally other people around you. If you're looking for 600 people to follow you into your blind path, you can find them, but be careful where you lead them. And be very careful that those who you are following are not blind. Because the blind like to bring people along with them, makes them feel better about their blindness, right? Those who have decided in their hearts to betray the Christ, those who have been led astray by Satan himself, right, the text tells us, those who have been led astray by Satan himself seldom want to do that in isolation. They want to do it with a band of 600, And so Judas here is at the head of a group of soldiers. He's at the head of a group of people who come with lanterns and torches, right? And they come to arrest Jesus. This betrayal comes in a place of familiarity. And it's like a blind man serving as a guide to others. I hate the fact that in verse 5 it says Judas was standing with them. Judas should have been standing with the disciples. That's where he belonged. But there is a thing that happens in our lives where over time it seems perfectly normal for us to be standing with those who are opposed to Christ. We want to be on guard in our lives. But in the midst of that drama and in the midst of that threat and in the midst of that betrayal, what I want you to see this morning is that Jesus doesn't pull his own sword. In fact, he tells Peter to put the sword away. He doesn't look at Peter and say, hey, let's go get our own group of soldiers. No, we see this beautiful demonstration on the part of Jesus of the the mindset that we should have as well in the midst of crisis. The first thing I want you to see in the heart of Jesus in this text is his control. Jesus is control all throughout. Everything in this text happens as a result of Jesus' control. First of all, he goes to a place he knows he can be found, right? If Jesus didn't want to be found by Judas, he wouldn't have gone to the place he goes every night to relax, Jesus went to a place he knew he could be found. I want you to know here in verses 1 through 11 that Jesus asks all the questions. They don't come to him making demands. They don't come to him asking questions. He asks all the questions and he knows all the answers. He knows what they're there doing. The text tells us he knew everything, right? Jesus is in control. 
He chooses the place. He chooses the conversation. He demonstrates clearly who he is. I don't want to do this this morning for the sake of time, but if I could give you a little bit of homework, I'll give you, it's, it's a fun one. It's a really fun piece of homework. Here's a little bit of homework for you. When you go home today, sometime this week, pull out your Bible. I want you to look at John 18, 1 through 11, and then I want you to compare it with the Genesis account of the garden. Look at John 3, right? And I want you to look at the way in which those things sit side by side. John is painting a lot of really interesting pictures. I won't give them all to you, but in, in, in Genesis account, we have Adam who wants to hide who he is. In John 18, we have Jesus who very clearly declares who he is, right? In John, we, in John, we see this sword come out to defend God. In Genesis, we see the sword come out to protect people from their own sin, right? To protect, to, to remove them from the tree of life. There are all kinds of juxtapositions here. We don't, I don't want to get too much into it today, but I would like for you to do that. You'll, you'll find there's like, there's like 30 of them. Incredible parallels between John 18 and the Genesis account of Adam and Eve in the garden of the fall of man. But in this case, Jesus is in control. It's no wonder he's in control. He's illustrating the things that he has himself said. Remember John 16, Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I think about the, the, the praise of Nebuchadnezzar. When Nebuchadnezzar praises God in Daniel chapter 4, he says, his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God is in control and Jesus demonstrates that in John 18. He goes to a place he knows he will be found. He asks all the question. He openly and transparently reveals who he is. By the way, in the original language, in the ESV here it says, I am he. He says, who are you seeking? And they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am he. That word he's not in the original language. The original language just says, I am. So there are some theologians and commentators who will say, that is him identifying with the character of God. God reveals himself, remember, in the Old Testament as I am. And they will say that's why the soldiers and the guards stumble and fall back. When he makes that declaration, he is claiming deity in that case. There are other people who will argue that that's not exactly what he's doing. It was a common way in which to associate that he was the one they were looking for. Even if he's not claiming deity here in John chapter 18, he is very publicly and blatantly saying, I'm the one you're after. This clearly is not what the soldiers and the guards were expecting. Why else bring the clubs? Why else bring the swords? Why else bring the torches on a moonlit night in the middle of the Passover season? They bring those things because they're expecting him to run and to hide. That isn't what Jesus does. He leans in. What is that demonstrating? It's demonstrating his control. He's in control of the situation. He clearly articulates who he is. He directs the soldiers. Look at verse 8. Jesus says to them again, who are you seeking? They tell him, Jesus of Nazareth, he says, I told you I am he. If you seek me, let these men go. He's directing them what to do. His control is directed even toward the soldiers. He says, if your warrant is for Jesus of Nazareth, you've got no issue with my, soul, with my disciples. Turn them loose. Jesus is in complete and utter control here. He fulfills his own promises. I want you to see that Jesus keeps his word in John 18. If you'll remember with me in John chapter 6, verse 39, Jesus says, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. 
For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus has said, I'm not going to lose any of my people. I hold on to my people. So then in John 18, when Jesus says, leave my disciples alone, John the writer here says he does this to keep his word, to fulfill the thing that he had promised, that he would not lose any of those who were his. Jesus is in control He even sort of disciples Peter in the midst of the drama. You know how it is when you're in the midst, you know, of a a fifth game NLDS loss and the Dodgers are choking at the end of the thing and you just feel like it's out of control and what are you going to do? Maybe you don't know how that feels. I know how that feels. Jesus, in the midst of these men, this mob of people searching for him, the betrayal of one of his own, knowing full well what's coming ahead, Jesus still has the presence of mind to correct one of his disciples. He doesn't just say, hey, Judas, knock it off with the sword business. Hey, put that thing. Where did you get a sword, buddy? You're not allowed to have a sword, right? He doesn't, he doesn't just question Peter. He disciples Peter in the midst of his own drama. Do you see Jesus in control here? I want you to see Jesus in control. This is not the soldiers in control. This is not Judas in control. This is not the chief priests and the Pharisees in control. Jesus is in control. That's important. We're going to come back to it. Not only do we see the control of Jesus in John 18, but we also see the concern, the concern of Jesus. I want you to see his care for the disciples, that he isn't just thinking about himself, that he is thinking about them, that he is thinking about us. I I actually think it's really, really beautiful. Back to the text we were looking at, uh, John 18, when he says to them in verse 8, if you seek me, let these men go. Let these men go is a decent encapsulation of the entire mission of Jesus. What did Jesus come to do? To set the captives free. To turn us free from enslavement to sin. To turn us free from the wickedness of this world, from sin and death. Jesus, in a small way, is painting a picture of his much greater work. He has in front of him, like we've seen on every page of the Gospel of John, he's not just looking at the present situation, but he's looking through the present situation to the greater need of people beyond. He looks at these soldiers and says, let my men go. Let these disciples in front of you go. There's no reason for you to them, But in the heart of Jesus, in the midst of this surprise, in the midst of this drama, is a heart that wants to set people free, that wants to turn people loose, that wants to protect the freedom of his own. You see his concern there? John 3.16, not that you need me to quote it, says God loved the world so much that he gave the only son he had that anybody who believes in him won't perish, but instead would have eternal life. What's that all about? The love of God turning men loose from sin and death. It also says in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and following, it says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Jesus' concern. He says, let my men go. He has the presence of mind to protect and preserve. That's important for us. Not only do we see his concern on display for his own disciples, but I want you to notice with me again the healing of Malchus, 
the high priest's servant. Was that necessary? No. Malchus is there on dirty business, right? He's there following the betrayer. Malchus certainly is a slave, but the fact that Jesus would take the time, Luke tells us to heal the man. John doesn't give us that account. It's much later. The story was already well known when John wrote his gospel. But Luke tells us that Jesus took the time not just to reprimand Peter for the sword business, but to restore the ear. Jesus has all power, right? He has all control. You know the only demonstration of Jesus' power we see in this text? When he heals the ear of his enemy's slave. He heals the ear of his enemy's slave. That's the only, I mean, he could have called a host of heavenly angels to come and defend him from this retinue of guards. He could have, by a word of power, sent them stumbling back had he chosen. He could have evaporated them all. He could have taken off into the sky with a jetpack. Jesus could have done whatever he wanted, right? The only demonstration of his supernatural power that is on display in this particular garden at this particular time is his concern for the enemy of his slave in the loss of an ear. He had another one. He'd have been fine. (laughs) And Jesus puts it back. I want you to see not only the control of Jesus in this moment, but the concern of Jesus, his caring. He cares. He's concerned for us. And then the last thing I want you to see this morning, not only his control, not only his concern, but his conformity. If, if there is a most important uh, thing in this text, it's this. Look with me, if you will, at verse 4 of John 18. John 18 verse 4 says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. I don't like to go to the doctor and get a flu shot, right? Because I've gotten a flu shot before and it hurts a tiny bit, right? Not even very much. But I know when I know, my wife puts that stupid thing on my schedule, right? She schedules me a flu shot. What a jerk, right? <laughs> I'm not saying anything to you that I haven't already said to her. I don't, I get the flu still. It doesn't help, whatever. So the point is... Thinking about the flu shot, I have this reluctance to go because of a tiny little pinprick. Jesus knowing everything that would happen. Because of his omniscience, because he's God, he knows everything that will happen, but also because of his full knowledge of the prophecies. Because he understood what Isaiah said. Because he understood what Daniel said. Because he understood what was waiting for him on the path ahead. I want you to understand here, Jesus wasn't surprised by the cross. He wasn't bamboozled by Judas. The surprise is for us who are reading. The surprise is for the disciples who thought he was going to be a military leader. The surprise maybe is even for the Jewish guards who, who thought that Jesus would be, you know, fighting against them or running away. There's all kinds of surprise in the text. There is no surprise for Jesus. He sees it all. And knowing what would happen, he came forward. Knowing what would happen, I'll just be honest with you, I tend to go the other way. Knowing what would happen, I tend to hide. I tend to duck and cover. Knowing what would happen, Jesus comes forward. And you look at that and go, how? How how, how does he do that? Well, it's because of his commitment to obedience to the will of the Father. Obedience to the will of the Father. Obedience to the thing that God had called him to do. John chapter 10, verse 17. We studied this already. Jesus says, for this reason the Father loves me, because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. In Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, 
It says in a messianic prophecy, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I did not hide or hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Jesus wasn't martyred, y'all. He wasn't murdered. He sacrificed himself. Knowing full well, he came forward. And what's he doing there? He's not only fulfilling God's will. He's not only honoring God, revealing the existing glory of God in his actions, but he's also setting a pattern for us. Jesus, knowing what would happen, came forward. We see his conformity to the will of God. Suffering and abuse that he chooses. You know, it's one thing when suffering and abuse happens to us because of the actions of others, because of their selfishness, because of their cruelty. There are many times in our lives where we're betrayed by people who we expect to care for us, and that is painful. But suffering and abuse that you choose loses some of its power. Jesus chooses this. He gives his cheeks to have his beard torn out. He gives his back to those who would whip him, it says in Isaiah. He has all the power, and yet it is only put on display to heal the enemy's slave. He says, shall I not drink? Look down at verse 11. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? The Father sent the Son to glorify him by rescuing us. Peter was essentially with the sword trying to stop that. Peter was trying to put a halt to it. He's trying through his own muscle and his own strength to circumvent the will of God. But you know what Peter needed more than Jesus being free? Peter needed Jesus to die on that cross for him. Peter needed Jesus to be arrested. And so we'll see in the text next week that Jesus is bound, not because those people overpowered him, but because he conformed to the will of the Father. There are gonna be moments in our own lives where the cup that God has asked you to drink is a painful cup, a difficult cup, a cup of sacrifice, a cup of betrayal, a cup where your own physical strength won't do you any good. And as a disciple of Jesus, when I look at this text, I'm forced to look into my own life and go, well, how do I, how do I conform to the will of the Father when it's a cup of suffering. I have to ask myself the question, how do I follow in Jesus' steps here? How do you follow in Jesus' steps when the cup that he's asked you to drink is a cup of ridicule, of mockery? We saw Jesus himself pray in John 17, the world will hate them because they're my emissaries, because I'm sending them like I was sent. They will be hated. So we know that that is a part of what it means to be followers of Jesus. How do you continue to conform to the image and the will of God when it's a cup of pain, when it's a cup of rejection, when it's a cup of sorrow? Well, the answer is that Jesus is still in control, and he's still incredibly concerned about you. The concern and control of Jesus make our conformity possible. Does that make sense? That he still loves you the way he loves those disciples. That he still loves you the way he loves the servant of his enemy. That he still loves you that much that he would die on the cross. And he has all the power. He has all the power, all the control, and he's with you always. We've talked about this again and again, but it's one of those things we can't hear enough. In, in the Great Commission in Matthew, Jesus doesn't just say, go and make disciples. He says, I got all the power, go and make disciples, I'll be with you always. If he has all the power and he's with us always, what can't we conform to? As we finish this morning, I would just ask you a couple of questions as we have looked at this text this morning. The, the first one would be this. Are there places where familiarity is creeping into betrayal in your life? 
Are there, are there places where you've just become so lackadaisical in, in your approach to God, in your knowledge of him, maybe your approach to his word, maybe your approach to worship? Are there places where following Jesus has just become so mundane that you're bordering on betrayal because you've lost your awe, you've lost your wonder, you've lost your sense of, of, of like majesty? And as a result of that, all of this just kind of seems like a thing you do on Sunday. Can I tell you, if all of this just kind of feels like a thing you do on Sunday, if all that we're talking about when it comes to conforming to the will of God in the entirety of our life, worshiping God in every thought, word, and deed, and attitude, if that just feels sort of ho-hum to you, I would put up a warning flag for you. You are on the verge of betrayal, if you're not already engaged in betrayal, right? That you will start to live a life that is not aligned with the purposes of God, but is aligned with the purposes of your own self, because you become too comfortable the familiarity. The second thing I would ask you this morning just to consider as we, as we finish is do you even know the cup that God has asked you to drink? Are you even aware of what God has gifted you for, what God has called you to? Or have, you, have you spent any time to think like, okay, I'm a plumber. How can I glorify God with plumbing? Okay, I'm a school teacher. How can I glorify God with school teaching? Okay, I've been through a divorce. How can I glorify God in the midst of all of the difficulty? Okay, I'm dealing with illness. Okay, I'm dealing with the loss of a loved one. Okay, I'm dealing with the fact that I don't know how I'm gonna pay my rent or I have so much money I, I could pay my rent and everybody else's and I don't know what to do. Like, what has God called you to do? Have you thought about it? Because how can you possibly conform to the will of God if you haven't given any thought to what he's calling you to and what he's gifted you for and why he's put you in your context specifically to glorify him with what he's given you, right? If you haven't thought about it, the likelihood is that what you have been thinking about is what do you want to do? And what you want to do is probably not even close to what Jesus would call you to, the cup that he's offered you. If you want to see one more juxtaposition with the Garden of Eden, remember that in in this garden, in John 18, Jesus gladly takes the cup that is offered even though it's a cup of suffering. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve take what was, what was not offered to them even though it brought death, right? They take it even though it wasn't for them. Jesus sets us a new example. Take what has been offered for the glory of God. Do you know the cup that he's called you to? And, and then the last thing I would say to you this morning is, what does your conformity look like? How do you conform to the will of God for you? How are you being obedient to the thing that he's put in front of you? Your unique circumstance and gifting. How are you conforming to it? And have you wrapped your arms around his incredible control and his incredible concern for you? Because it is only in an understanding of his love for you and his power that you will be able to drink the cup that he's offered. And so we see Jesus in this text paint us a picture. He's not surprised. We kind of are. It catches us off guard, but it doesn't catch him off guard. Jesus is in control, and he is concerned, and he conforms to the will of the Father, and so should we. Would you pray with me as we close? God, I pray that you would stir us to look at the places in our life where we become overly familiar or the places in our life where we're trying to muscle our way through, where we pulled our sword and we're just trying to hack and slash because some, some way we think you need our muscle. God, would you give us clarity? Would you give us clarity about the cup that you've called us to drink? Would you give us clarity about the places where we've lost our awe and our wonder? Would you give us a real clear sight of your concern and your control so that we would be inspired by your conformity and like you, our King and our Savior, drink the cup that you've offered for us as well. 
We pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen.